am honored to be here. Two services, look at y'all. That's incredible. I loved hearing those numbers, and I'm with Pastor Drew, and I know his heart so well. Uh, he cares about the presence of the Lord, the person of Jesus. He cares about people. And so for him, he has the heart posture to be able to celebrate numbers in a very healthy way. And so I celebrate them with you. And I'm honored to be here and having heard that. Uh, I, if my recollection is accurate, my first time preaching here was on uh, January the 1st, 2012. So I've been around Lifehouse for a decade, in and out. And it is an absolute joy to see where the Lord has you now. Uh, and if you are on the fence, you're in the right place. Go ahead and let that be settled in your heart. If you're here for the first time, welcome to your family for the rest of your life, all right? This is where you belong. They'll take care of you well. Man, thank you so much. You can grab a seat. I mean, I'd love for you to play the entire time, but I don't do that to your back. <laughs> Every keyboardist, sometimes I'll do that, and, and I can just see them over there. They're going to have to go to a chiropractor when it's over. Well, I've got a message today that I believe will be um, relevant to every single person in the room on some level, uh, and we'll get into uh, the actual text in a little bit, but I want to start with just a series of questions, uh, and these aren't rhetorical. You can respond, whether it be through verbal affirmation, the nodding of a head, the raising of a hand, or a little chuckle because, uh, because you know, it's just too true. And you just can't help but laugh because you don't want to cry. So I want to ask you a few questions. I'm curious if any of these apply to you. Have you ever been lied to? Yeah. Have you ever been lied about? Now we're not going to talk about whether we've lied or not. That's a, that's a different message for a different day. All right. That's a, we're, we're not even dealing with that right now. Uh, have you ever felt taken advantage of? Ha have you ever dealt with manipulation? or control from someone or some group? Have you ever been harshly criticized? Have you ever been talked bad about behind your back? Yeah, right? Have you ever uh, just given your best and it not be good enough for someone no matter how hard you try? Have you ever had someone say hurtful things about your spouse or your children? So it's, we're, listen, we started laughing and now here, we're just going off the cliff, aren't we? This is real, huh? Have you ever been accused of something that's just not true? Has someone ever taken one sound bite from you? One sentence out of the thousands of sentences you've said and make a broad-based assumption about who you are or your character based off of one soundbite. As a preacher, that happens quite a bit. I can preach for 45 minutes, and it's amazing how many people can find three words and decide that I'm an absolute theological heretic based on three words completely out of context, right? It just happens from time to time. Uh, have you ever um, really tried your best like you poured yourself completely into something and it just not work and felt the sting of disappointment in the aftermath of your great effort. Uh, have you ever experienced personal grief and you just had to keep going? Like you, you're dealing with something in your health or your family, just your world, but the world doesn't quit moving. The, the, the calendar doesn't hit pause, the seconds keep ticking, and you have to keep functioning even though you are carrying the load of grief. Have you ever had to uh, deal with the disillusionment that comes when you have a close confidant and you share something in confidence and they didn't keep the confidence and more people know than you ever wanted to know? Have you ever had a close friendship, a deep relationship? And, and we know the only way you can really be close to someone or have a deep relationship is if you open up. You allow them to see all of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And have you ever had one of those friendships or relationships go south and then they weaponize what they know about you? 
They take all of the things that you uh, were vulnerable in and they use it against you in some way. Have you ever wept over someone only to see them looking at you with a scowl? Have you ever watched someone that you loved and you cared about walking to a, to a cliff like they're on the edge and, and no matter how much you shout, don't do that, stop, you're, you're going to dash yourself against the rocks, they, they don't stop. And you just watch them pummel their own life with their decision making. Have you ever had somebody say you're not talented enough or you're not capable or you're just not it? Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever felt misunderstood? Have you ever been left to deal with the fallout of someone else's lack of integrity? They blew it. They were wrong. They sinned. They made a terrible decision. And here you are left to deal with something you didn't do. Have you ever had someone demand more of you than you knew you could give? Someone that seemed to only care about what they could get out of you. Okay, so I could keep going, but the mood in this room has shifted. I've got, I've got a great encouraging word for you. Are you ready? Welcome to life. Welcome to being a human being. And, and this next layer to that is a little less comfortable to say, but welcome to church. It happens. It's real. When you get humans together, it inevitably at some point will lead to some difficulty, some discomfort, some pain, some problems. On occasion, we are the perpetuators. We are the perpetrators. And then other times, we're on the receiving end. So what do you do with all of that? I'll just submit to you that the trajectory of your life largely depends on what you do with all of that. Like who you become, not just who you become, but who your kids become, who generations after you become, largely is dictated on how you handle all that mess that we just asked questions about. So what do we do when we find ourselves dealing with less than ideal circumstances or people. Well, I want to submit to you the life of Paul today, the apostle. Now, we think of him as a, an elite theologian, the writer of the bulk of the New Testament, one of the most brilliant minds to ever grace planet Earth. He had lofty ideas of who God was and is. He had a memory that must have been impeccable because in writing he could draw from an obscure Old Testament passage and make it relevant to the moment. We know for a fact that he had memorized the first five books of the Bible. They called it the Torah, word for word. He was, he was uh, a man that literally saw miracles at the end of his hand. He was a tent maker, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. And he would have a handkerchief as a part of his wardrobe as a tent maker. And people would take that handkerchief and touch sick people and they'd be healed. Like there are people in the Bible that are way easy to relate to. Like, like Peter, easy to relate to. Elijah when he got depressed, easy to relate to. You know, Cain and Abel, Cain getting mad, easy to relate to, right? Paul is at times hard to relate to unless you understand who he really was. You know, we believe fully and completely here at Lifehouse that the scriptures are the inspired, God-breathed, perfect word of God. That the Bible is useful for preaching and teaching. That it is inerrant. It is 100% accurate. It is flawless. But the people who put pen to papyrus were not. And sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect in us. And we don't realize just how human these people were as they were communicating these divine words. So Paul, before he was Paul, was a man named Saul. And he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus that was revolutionary, transformational, changed everything about him. 
But before that, what we know about Saul is that he was a pristine, put-together, highly educated, detached leader in the religious system of Judaism. What we know about Saul is that he was volatile. He would have been categorized as a zealot. That doesn't just mean he was really excited about things. Those that were zealots in that day believed it was perfectly acceptable to use any means necessary to preserve the sanctity of their faith. That means if, it, if violence was needed, that was justified. And Paul exacted that violence routinely on Christians. He stood as Stephen was stoned and not only looked on, but he validated that. He was a man that frequently imprisoned Christians. He had uh, prescribed for Christians death. Not only that, but what we know about the religious leadership of that day, they had a great disdain for anyone who wasn't Jewish. If you were categorized outside of the Jewish camp as a Gentile, you were unclean. You were someone they didn't want to deal with. You could probably say they were racist. And Saul was very much that. Then he meets Jesus. And he is changed. And we very much believe in the dramatic, life-changing power of Jesus. For we're witnesses, right? But we also know that though you are a new creation in Christ, sometimes Saul comes knocking on Paul's door. And, and sometimes that old version of ourself, we're still wrestling with a little bit on the journey. And so... Paul was no different in his writings. You could on occasion, you know, get a sense for some of his anger, some of his sarcasm. I mean, when, when he wrote at times, he was pretty snarky. He had an edge to him. And we also know as you read Paul's letters that he evolved, that he grew. He was writing theological principles that have been changing us for hundreds upon hundreds of years. And if you pay close enough attention, they were changing him along the way too. And so we look at his life and we get to 2 Corinthians. And most scholars look at 2 Corinthians and they agree that it has a different tone and tenor to it than most of Paul's writings. It, it has an edge to it. It has a bite. He, he sometimes had bite in other letters, but this one just felt antagonizing it it feels in second corinthians like there's an edge there's something going on and so the backstory of second corinthians is that when paul was writing it he was in prison in ephesus now the reason he was in prison is absurd to us in this day and time god was moving people were being healed people were being saved and 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 so much was happening under the name of Jesus that people were no longer buying idols from the idol makers and they got angry and they rioted in the streets. I mean, Paul was leading a ministry that literally was changing the economy of his city. I mean, but you mess with people's money. <laughs> and so he finds himself in prison and he's writing this letter. Now, he had been in prison before with Silas, and they were in the dungeon. And at the midnight hour, they raised a hallelujah, and the prison shook, and the chains fell off, and they walked out. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I, if something worked one time, I'm going to try it again. And so my guess is Paul was in prison in Ephesus and raised another hallelujah, and nothing happened. Hold on, you didn't get me out this time. This imprisonment was dragging on a little longer than prior imprisonments. And so now you start to question what's going on. Like I, I, I thought things were going well. Lord, why am I locked up now? Why aren't you getting me out? Not to mention the fact that if you're in prison in the Roman Empire, execution is a high possibility. And so now Paul is wrestling with ideas possibly like, is this it? Like, is my ministry over? Like all that I've done, is, is, has it just come to a screeching halt? But even more than that, the people he was writing to, 
had a lot going on. You know, the Corinthian church, if you read First and Second Corinthians, you know they had issues. Once again, welcome to church. Welcome to being human. But he loved them deeply. Paul cared a lot about the believers in Corinth. He had put his blood, sweat, and tears into them. He, he cared at the deepest places of his being for these people. And unfortunately, while he was in Ephesus in prison, some outside influencers had come into the church in Corinth. And they had started sowing dissension. They had started uh, calling into question the validity of who Paul was. They had started uh, bringing deceptive ideas about the nature of Christ and salvation. They had taken the scriptures, they had taken the gospel message and they had polluted it. And unfortunately, the Corinthian believers were buying it hook, line, and sinker. And so Paul is in prison. He can't get to them. And he writes a letter. And he writes the letter to the people that he loves in Corinth and also to these outside influences. He wants to make sure they hear too. I, I don't know how you would feel in that situation, but I can only imagine a great deal of anxiety and anger. Because the way these influencers worked is they started attacking Paul, questioning, is he really an apostle? Who says he is? Who validated him? And then they questioned his motives. He's in it for the money. He's in it for personal gain. He's in it to manipulate you. And then they questioned his theology. He's wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, what really troubles Paul about this, aside from the very blatant personal attack that would frustrate any of us, is that Paul knows these people are still way too new in this Christian thing. The way is, is still fledgling when it comes to history. And, and, and a slight alteration to the purity of the gospel could be disastrous. And these people that he loved could fall off the spiritual cliff and be lost forever. All that he had put into them shipwrecked and so he writes this letter with all of those emotions and I can only imagine more that we don't fully understand and this is what the letter looks like he says in 2nd Corinthians 11 verses 16 through 18 again I say don't think that I am a fool to talk like this but even if you do, listen to me as you would a foolish person while I boast a little. Since others boast about their human achievements, I will too. Now, I didn't really know we were allowed to boast or brag. But here goes Paul. He's agitated. And basically what he is saying is these people ha have bragged about their resume. They have talked about their lineage and, 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 and their genealogy and why they belong and why I don't. They, they've told you all about all of their accomplishments. Let, 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 let me boast about mine while we're at it. He wanted the people that he loved to hear this, but he also wanted those outside influencers to get a load of this too. Now, when Paul said, let me boast a little, I want to give you a little bit of his resume when he penned these words. First and foremost, he had been to Jerusalem and had submitted himself to what we call the Jerusalem Council, which was the original apostles. And those original apostles, those original disciples spoke with Paul. They evaluated the fruit of his life and they laid their hands on him and said, you are an apostle, you are the real deal. Now, I'm an Assemblies of God minister. I'm credentialed. I'm grateful for that. But that is nothing compared to like Peter, James, and John going, you're it. <laughs> I appreciate the ordination service and Pastor Todd Alexander laying his hands on me. But I mean, Peter, James, and John, right? <laughs> so let me boast a little. And he could have talked about the fact that the Jerusalem Council had said he was the real deal. By the time he wrote, let me boast a little, he had stood in front of a Roman governor, a Roman high official, and shared with this Roman official the gospel. Now, in a real Lord of the Rings, weird dynamic, there was a sorcerer there. 
And the sorcerer started trying to manipulate the Roman official. And Paul, apparently Saul, crept in. And he looked at the sorcerer and he struck the sorcerer blind. I didn't even know we were allowed to do that. Like, I didn't know that was Christian. I mean, is that biblical? I mean, you just struck, I thought we're supposed to heal people. We're supposed to forgive them and offer them mercy and grace and love. Blind. And the guy just starts groping around as it, Scripture says, darkness came over him. And the governor was like, oh my, get, get me saved right now. Led him to the Lord. That was on his resume when he said, let me boast a little. When he said, let me boast a little, he had been in Lystra and he had healed a crippled man at that point. He had, as I mentioned before, been in prison and worshiped and praised the Lord and a whole prison shook. I mean, y'all might not think I'm valid, but God did. When he said, let me boast a little, he had already stood among the intellectual elite of Athens, which was known as the epicenter of brilliance in the world at that time. It was Harvard, it was Oxford, it was Cambridge, it was Yale. It was the height of brilliance. And Paul, on trial, stood before the intellectual elite for hours and blew their minds. So much so that they said, we want to hear from you again. Quite a resume. Let me boast a little. By the time he said, let me boast a little, he had turned the commerce of Ephesus upside down. He had seen miracle on top of miracle. By the time he wrote 2 Corinthians, he had visited over 30 cities and had 20 known church plants. Now, scholars believe that that was upwards of 100 churches after the 20 launched others. So when he said, let me boast a little, I mean, the assumption is, here comes the resume. Here, here comes all the accolades. Here comes all of his accomplishments. But Paul knew something that we would do well to learn. Heaven weighs things differently. And when we stand before the Lord, some of the things that we think are heavy on the scale aren't as heavy as other things that maybe we would like to forget. So he says, I will boast just a little bit. And so we get to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 29. And he starts this way. Are they, speaking of those outside influences, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I've served him more. Verse 23, he said, I have worked harder. Which that does seem kind of like a normal boast. Like I work harder than you. But you got to know, Paul went on three missionary journeys. We'll talk about his work in a little bit. I mentioned that he was a tent maker. He didn't do that as a side hustle, okay? He wasn't making tents to create generational wealth for his lineage, all right? He, he wasn't doing that so he could retire early. He was making tents because... He was leading people into a faith that was often very costly. He knew that a Jewish person who said yes to Jesus risked being ostracized and excommunicated from their family, thus losing the entirety of their inheritance. He knew that a Gentile within the Roman Empire who said yes to Jesus risked their occupational viability because most uh, Roman citizens, if, if they were blue-collar, they were in a trade guild. You know, whether it was uh, carpentry or uh, some, some type of uh, plumbing, whatever, you name it. They had a trade guild. And each trade guild in the Roman Empire had a false deity that it worshipped, that it attributed its success to. Well, if you become a believer, you have to renounce the God of your guild. And once you renounce the God of your guild, you are blacklisted in your trade. And so Paul was dealing with many people. It wasn't just that all the people that were getting saved were the poor people. There were people that had a lot that suddenly had nothing because they said yes to Jesus. 
And so Paul would work extra hours as a tent maker because he didn't want to be a burden to these people. He knew they were losing so much he didn't want to add any extra weight of pressure. Not only that, but Paul would work as a tent maker in Ephesus and historians will tell you that that he would work basically on Main Street. And in the morning, everybody would work. And then in the middle of the day in Jewish culture, they would take a, a break for like two to four hours. And it was often the practice during that break for people to go to a lecture hall and hear lectures. So Paul took all of his money from tent making and he rented out the main lecture hall in the city of Ephesus. And he would preach for two to three hours, lead people to Jesus, and then go back to making tents so he could do it all over again the next day. So when he says he worked harder, it wasn't just sweat and, 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 and trying really hard. There was a lot of purpose behind it. He said, let me boast a little bit. I've been put in prison more often. Now at that point, that's not really something we boast about. Like we're, that's, we're hoping that don't show up on the background check. Right? You know? So, so let me boast a little. I've been in prison. Well, it doesn't, that's not quite congruent. Scholars believe that he was imprisoned at least seven times and that he spent over six literal years of his life imprisoned. He said in verse 23, I've been whipped times without number. Like, I've been whipped so many times I'd have lost count. Let me brag. He said, I have faced death again and again. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. There's one account of this in the Bible in Acts 16. Paul and Silas uh, delivered a demon-possessed girl that, who was a slave girl, and she was being used to, as a fortune teller, and they delivered her of the demon, and the people that owned her lost money. And so they had Paul and Silas punished. And that, in that, that punishment of rods, they were rods that were about this big around and they were longer than me and it was a Roman punishment and they would just pummel a person with them. And that happened to Paul three times. Let me brag a little. He said in verse 25, once I was stoned. This was in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas were preaching and miracles were happening. And so the pagan people thought they were their gods, Zeus and Hermes. So they started worshiping them in the streets. And I'm not talking about like what we just did. They started bringing animals out and killing them. And Paul and Barnabas are like, no, this is about Jesus. Don't do this. And, and I mean this seriously. Some well-intentioned Jewish people saw what was going on and made a bad assumption about Paul and Barnabas that they were inciting some type of worship other than the worship of the Lord. So they drug Paul out of the city and they stoned him to what they thought was death. And there he lay lifeless almost within an inch of his life outside of the city. And the believers helped him get himself together and to get to the next city where he keeps preaching the gospel. And a lot of people would have quit. And you know, you, you don't get stoned almost to death without it leaving a mark. So you remember Paul, when he was Saul, religious elite, untouchable, walked around with brilliant garments on, unblemished, wealthy. Now let's look at Paul having been pelted by stones no doubt with new scars, some physical marring. And we know that his eyesight was troubled because of some of the ways he wrote. It's thought that maybe his hands were, were um, uh, dysfunctional because of some of what he endured. Let me boast a little. I mean, some of you probably feel a little like Paul, figuratively speaking. I got some scars. I've got a bit of a limp. I've got some damage, some wounds. Verse 25, it says, Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole day and night adrift. 
Now, I want to point out in Acts 27, it's in Scripture that Paul experienced a shipwreck, but 2 Corinthians was written before Acts 27. So at least four times he was on a boat that sank. Now, now that happens once. You know, you're like, okay, it's just bad luck, coincidence, no big deal. But the next time I get on a ship, I'm going to have a conversation with the captain. I'm going to be checking the integrity of the hull. I'm going, to interview, I'm going to interview the crew. He gets on a second ship, and it sinks. It shipwrecks. I, I mean, I, at that point, I am choosing a different mode of transportation. I'll walk a few extra miles. I'll do what I got to do. I'm not getting on another boat. Yet it seems he kept getting on boats. Have you ever had an involuntary reaction to something from your past? I mean, this is, this is a little... Um, shallow, but, but I think it'll make the point. When I was around 24 years old, I was driving my automobile through a, a busy intersection on a rainy day in Beaumont, Texas. Um, I had a green light. I have legal documentation that says that I was not in the wrong. You know, because y'all know how these like things go, right? He said, she said. And so I'm going through the intersection. I've got the green light. I've got the right-of-way. And a person on the other side just decides to take a left-hand turn in front of me. And there was no stopping. And so I slammed into them. Didn't quite T-bone them, but I hit the front half of their car. They went spinning and careening one way. My automobile automatically ricocheted and hit a large metal light pole. Uh, I was 24 years old. 20, I was limber. I just jumped right out of my car. I was fine. I ran over to them. They're screaming their heads off. I mean, they won't quit screaming. I'm like, hey, are you okay? You, you did this, by the way. Why are you over here screaming? It's on you. So, y'all know. I'm over here checking on them. I'm, I'm 44. It's, it's been roughly 20 years. I drive Michelle nuts when we go through intersections. Because if I see yellow, I mean, I hover the brake through every intersection 20 years later. And I, I still have a little bit of the reverberations from that moment. Y'all know what I'm talking about because it's way deeper for some of us than a little auto accident. You know, for some of us, there is a pain point in our past. There's a hurt, there's a wound, there's a disappointment. There's a struggle. And here we sit, whether it's a couple of years or a couple of decades later, and it still creates a wince in us. It still creates involuntary emotions to, that begin to rise up on the inside of us when something feels familiar to that. You know, they call it triggered nowadays. But, but a lot of us deal with that. And there's something we should learn from Paul in this. When you experience a shipwreck, we cannot allow that shipwreck to shipwreck our faith or to shipwreck the call of God on our life or to shipwreck our emotions. No, you go through one difficulty and then you keep going in life anticipating another difficulty is coming. But difficulty does not get to dictate the terms to me. I will not be dominated by that point of pain. I will not allow that to have a seat at the table. It will not get a voice of influence. It hurt. It was disappointing. It was real. It was hard. It was a struggle. But it is not my Lord. And what happens with a lot of us is that moment or even that person unwittingly becomes the Lord of our life because they have as much, if not more, influence on our decision-making, our emotions, and our relationships than the Holy Spirit does. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you a sinner. It makes you really human. I'm just here to tell you, keep getting on boats because God has places He wants you to go. And Paul was determined, I will not let a shipwreck stop me from progress. I'll just keep doing it over and over and over again. You know, 
we talk about toughness. We have a misguided idea of what it means to be tough. A lot of times we think that being tough is having um, enough uh, fortification around our heart that we never get hurt. It's not being tough. It's actually being weak. Real toughness in the kingdom of God is I put my heart on the table. I put my heart on the altar. And if I deal with some hurt, I take that heart and I give it to the Lord and I let him minister to me. But then I put my heart right back out there. I don't live guarded. I don't live sheltered. I don't live shielded. That's no way to live. I mean, do we get that? That's like fortifying your heart so you don't get hurt is no, you'll never really live. And without realizing it, you fortify your heart from really experiencing the Lord too. The only way to be tough is to be willing to get hurt. But having the trust in the Lord to know he'll take care of me when I do. That when I thought I lost me, he knew where I left me. And he put me back together. If you want to go ahead and graduate to a whole nother level of maturity, you'll start getting the revelation that that pain actually grew me. And when he puts me back together, he actually removes some of the parts that didn't need to be there and goes ahead and discards them. And, and he reveals some parts that were always there that I didn't know were there. And when I'm done with this, I am stronger. I am more devoted. I am nearer to the Lord. See, the enemy was trying to take you out and had no clue that if you work it right, he was pushing you into the Lord. What the enemy meant to kill you with, what he meant to take you out with, actually is the thing that propels you deeper into affection for the Lord, if you'll allow it. Oh, you really are devoted once you've gone through a few shipwrecks. Can we hang a couple more moments? He goes on to say, I've traveled a long, many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and robbers. I face danger in cities and in the deserts and on the seas. I face danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I face danger with men who claim they're Christians but are not. Basically, I, everywhere I go, somebody's mad at me. He talks about working hard and enduring sleepless nights, being hungry and thirsty, basically being inconvenienced. He's bragging about being thirsty and hungry. Paul understands something. He understands that when we stand before the Lord, the real boast is what we sacrificed and what we endured but remained faithful. The pain that we experienced that we didn't let take us out. That's your real worship. Your greatest worship is not the song you sing. It's not the offering you put in the plate. Your greatest worship is not the ministry you do. Your greatest worship is the fact that when you went through hell, you didn't give up on Jesus. And he looks at you in that and says, thank you that you didn't quit coming. I want to skip to one that I didn't read before. And I, I intentionally held off on it because... I felt it was pretty poignant. He says, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. So I mentioned before that Paul could quote the Torah. Paul knew that in Deuteronomy there was a law. That if the spiritual leadership, if the synagogue leaders found someone to be in theological error or contentious with the faith, that the punishment for said actions was to be beaten with a whip, 39 lashes. He knew that that was the law. As a matter of fact, I mean, it's almost guaranteed that Paul administered that punishment to others. Yet, interestingly enough, if you read the New Testament, you realize that almost in every city, Paul started his ministry in the synagogue. He didn't run away from the lashes. He ran into them. 
He would go to a synagogue knowing that law was written in there because he had it etched in his memory. And he would preach the gospel of Jesus knowing that synagogue leaders would likely find it to be in theological error or contentious to the faith. He would go to the synagogue and start there knowing the odds were decent that he would endure a lashing with a whip. What's my point? Sometimes we come into this environment and we have some negative experiences. Some of you have some negative experiences in your church history. You should take a lesson from Paul. He just kept showing up. He just kept walking in synagogues. He was willing to endure the difficulty for the greater good. Am I saying it's right? Absolutely not. Am I saying it's justified? No way. But it is real. And, and at some point, we just got to understand that when you deal with human beings, this is a part of the process. And odds are somewhere along the way we've held the whip. I know I have. And if you'll come play. Dick Brogdon, he's a world-renowned missionary. Uh, he, he launched what we know to be the Live Dead movement. And uh, he, he gives this beautiful illustration that I think is appropriate for the moment. But we understand in Scripture that we're to crucify the flesh, right? You know, we take up our cross and follow Jesus. There's nothing sugar-coated about that. There's nothing but, buttoned up and pristine about that. Like, I'm going to crucify my flesh. So he gives the illustration, well, how do you do that? Well, you can take a nail and you take a hammer and you get it in your feet pretty good. And you, you can probably position the nail over here. And, but how do you get the last hand up there? There's only one way. You have to put the hammer in somebody else's hand. Part of the crucifying of the flesh process is taking a little bit of what's inflicted upon us from other people. You remember what I said before. The enemy might have been trying to take you out with it, but the Lord's using it to take you up. If you could just see it that way. I'm not saying the person was right. All those people that were nailing Jesus to the cross, they were completely wrong. Yet they were ushering him into the fulfillment of all of God's plans for him. Well, you got to get to, like They were vile. They were sin-soaked. They were inflicting punishment upon him. That was unjust in every way. Yet unbeknownst to them, unbeknownst to Satan, their volatility toward Christ was launching him into his divine purpose. Could it be the same for us? That the stuff people have done, the things that we've endured, though vile, despicable, inhumane, sinful, in God's great plan, we're launching us into his divine purpose. And into the fulfillment of everything he intended for us to be. That's a different version of the gospel, right? I mean, it's more fun to talk about how blessed we're going to be. But I've learned the greatest blessings come through blood, sweat, and tears. First his, and then on occasion our own. I want to finish with the Paul's final letter. He wrote 2 Timothy knowing he was going to die. He was yet again in prison in the Roman Empire, this time under the dictatorship of Nero, who was one of the most maniacal leaders in human history. And uh, Paul knew when he's writing 2 Timothy, this is it. I'm about to be a martyr. So these were a few of the things he said. Verses four through, or chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, he said, My life has been poured out as a drink offering to God. 
You know, a drink offering didn't have much productivity to it. You took a libation, you poured it out. Paul was basically saying, what, whatever my life accomplished, it didn't really matter. I was pouring my life out unto him. However many things I can weigh on the scale, it's feather light compared to the simplicity of my life was poured out for the Lord. And when you stand before the Lord, He's not weighing all the stuff you've done and accomplished near as much as He is weighing the stature of your heart. So He goes on to say, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've remained faithful, and now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me. Like after all of this, you get a reward. And the reward isn't the crown. The reward is to get to sit at his feet and throw that crown down. But this is how he finishes it. And this is where I want to finish today. 2 Timothy 4, 10 through 11, and then verse 16. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and he's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned. And then he says this, may it not be counted against them. Now that has a certain amount of weight, but when you remember that Paul wrestled with Saul in his earlier years and there was a guy named John Mark that was a part of their ministry. He was a part of his and Barnabas's ministry. And apparently John Mark did something that Paul did not like. And Paul felt so intensely about it that he was willing to part ways with Barnabas over it. Now Barnabas was Paul's spiritual father. When nobody would get near Paul because they knew he was murderous, he was saved now, but nobody would get near him because they knew this guy has killed a lot of us. It was Barnabas that placed his hand on Paul and looked at everybody else and said, hey, if y'all trust me, he's the real deal now. It was Barnabas that launched Paul into ministry. It was Barnabas that put everybody at ease with Paul. It was Barnabas that took him under his wing and nurtured him into the fulfillment of his calling. And here Paul is feeling some kind of way about a mistake that John Mark made. And Barnabas said, hey, it's time to go out on our next missionary journey. And he said, I think we should take John Mark. And Paul said, no. Paul was so vehement about this that he said, if he goes, we go separate ways. So Paul parted ways with his spiritual father because he did not have enough patience or grace and mercy for the mistake that John Mark had made. Now fast forward to the end of Paul's life. And actually he says, I believe in 2 Timothy, hey, bring John Mark. He's useful. And then he starts talking about all the ones that let him down and he says, may it not be counted against them. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like a savior on a tree saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. See, you're evolving. And what I find in Scripture that may be the most encouraging thing about this whole talk is that Jesus was patient with Paul's evolution. In the beginning, when he is saying, I don't want anything to do with this person that made a mistake, Jesus was still moving in his life. Jesus was still blessing him. Jesus was still doing miracles. Jesus was still protecting him and taking care of him. Jesus let him go on the journey to graduate to finally saying, don't hold it against him. He'll be patient with you too. He is. But there is a requirement. We actually have to 
be on that journey. It might take you to the end to fully be able to say, Lord, forgive them. Lord, it's okay, I'm over it. It might take years. And Jesus will be patient with the years as long as you are on that road. For some of us today, we just got to get on the road. For others of us today, it's time for a shipwreck to stop shipwrecking us. For some of us, it's time to finally wake up to the realization that 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 thing that those people did that was wrong was intended to launch us into everything that's right. But that doesn't happen until our perspective shifts. I you to close your eyes. Thank you for being patient. I want to ask three or four questions and then we're going to respond quickly. First question is this. If you are far from Jesus, you're here at Lifehouse Church this morning and for whatever reason you chose to come and you know that you're far from Him. Maybe at one time you were a devoted Christian or a semi-devoted Christian and, and you can either remember the point on your journey where you took a different path or it just kind of happened without you realizing it. But you sit here this morning knowing that you are a long way from Him. Or you never said yes to Him. You're in a church today and you have never really committed your life to being a follower of Jesus. If one of those applies to you and today you would like to draw near to Jesus, you would like to make Him the epicenter of your life, let me see your hand. Here's the next question. You've been shipwrecked. You remember it. You know when it happened. And you are still feeling the reverberations of it in your life. And you would like today to be the beginning of the end of that thing having influence in your world. If that's you, let me see your hand. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Here's the next one. There are some of us, we're here. Some of you may be very committed to Lifehouse Church. But because of some of your experiences in the church, you find yourself being a little guarded, a little jaded, a little suspicious, a little cynical. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. I'm not even categorizing that as sin. Like we go through pain and we pick up baggage. But if that's you and you, you feel that way when it comes to church and you're here, but you still wrestle with that stuff and you'd like to be free today, let me see your hand. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. And here's the last one. There is someone that needs a may it not be counted against them in your life. But you don't quite feel like you're there yet, but you'd really like the help of Jesus to get there. Let me see your hand. All right. Can we all stand? I'd love to, to pray with you. Pastor Drew, do we have staff, prayer team? How do we do this? Yes, perfect. So if there are leaders in the church in just a moment, I want you to come help us out. But if you raised your hand, uh, I would say there were probably 10, 15 people that at some point raised their hand. I hope that's not an overestimation. I want to encourage you, if you have felt this Lord has hit your, this word has hit your heart to move on it. And I'd like to pray with you. The team would like to pray with you. So the worship team, if y'all begin to sing, if you raised your hand, just come on out and meet me right here. We want to pray together.